tried today to make this as normal a service as we can because I don't like Satan disrupting what we would normally do. Uh, obviously, we have to make some adjustments and changes. So again, I appreciate those of you that are here. Uh, we've been talking about... So I'm going to continue with, this, with the message that I already had planned uh, as the next message in line. And as I was going over the notes this morning for this, all of a sudden God opened my eyes to see how this applies specifically to where we are right now and what we're dealing with right now. What we've been talking about is who is this God we serve? That the foundation of our relationship with God, especially in a time like this, and when everything's going well and everything's going great, uh, uh, it's, it's easy to just say, yeah, I, I believe in God, I love God, I'm serving God. But when a crisis comes into, whether it's into your life personally or into a nation or into a church, that's when we go back to the foundations. We find out what is it we're really standing on. There's a verse in the end of chapter 12 of, of Hebrews that says there'll come a time when everything that can be shaken will be shaken and that only those things that are of God will remain. That's not a bad thing because many things come into our life, into our thinking, into our hearts, into our churches, into our societies that are really not of God. They can be good things, but they're not of God. And what is not of God ultimately is, a, is, is, is sinking sand to stand upon with your life. Our lives have to be based on and standing upon our faith and trust in God and who God is and what God's like. But to do that, we've got to know who this God is, really know who this God is. And God has begun to take me back in my own life and take me back, therefore, to begin to lead this church, to go back and look at who is this God we serve. And, and, and the only way we can know that, because you can't know God by your intelligence, you can't know God by, your scientific, by our scientific instruments, because God is a being that's out there in a realm that our senses cannot detect. So we can only know God as He reveals Himself to us. If God doesn't reveal Himself, we have no way of knowing what He's like. We may make up our own ideas, but it will not be the true and the living God. And God has chosen to reveal Himself primarily through His Word. He's given us this Word to tell us who He is and what He's like. And then He's given us that have put our faith in Christ, He's given us His Spirit to take that Word and make it alive within us. So we've chosen in this study to go back and just look at what God's Word says. And to do that, we're looking at where God literally came down to reveal Himself to His own people, Israel. And that story is in Exodus 19, and we've already looked at that. God had brought this nation that God had formed for Himself, that had been in Egypt for over 400 years. And when they were in this bondage and cried out for deliverance, God brought them out by ten supernatural, glorious miracles and delivered them and they saw their enemies destroyed in, in, the, in, a, in the Red Sea uh, in one day. And then God began to leave them. And after about three months, God said, I need to show myself to them so that they will not sin because I know this people. They had lived in Egypt and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And they come out of Egypt and now God wants to introduce himself to his people. And this is what we've begun to talk about. So let's pray as we get into this, this message. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that you are a true and the living God, that you are the almighty God. And no threat, no disease, no plague, no, no, no cat catastrophe can change who you are and what your plans are. And so we come today and we ask you by the spirit of the living God 
that you would make yourself real to us today and reveal to us what it is we need to know about you. Take this living word and breathe it over the internet and over the means by which people are watching and even in this sanctuary this morning that people would have a greater knowledge today of who you are in their lives. And for that we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So in Exodus 19, and these notes are posted on, on the website, uh, God speaks to Moses. We saw that. And we saw that, that, um, that God told them, I'm going to come down on the mountain. You give them three days to get themselves ready. And I'm going to come down on that mountain. And I'm going to come down in my thunder and lightning. And I'm going to speak to them from there because I, they need to fear me so that they will obey me and that they will not sin. And then God made a covenant with them of what would happen if they obeyed him and how he would take care of them. And we're going to look at that today. And God comes down on the mountain in the thunder and lightning and the people draw near to the base of the mountain and God begins to speak with His thunderous voice, the, the sound of many rushing waters, the Bible says, and they run away. They flee. And they say, Moses, you go talk to God and you tell us what He has to say. And so we talked about the fact that, that God, had, God knew what they needed to see so that they would able, be able to obey Him and they chose to exercise their own judgment of what they could do in place of what God had said to them. And the result is they didn't obey Him and we're going to see some of that this morning. So, let's go now to Exodus. We began last time to look at what God did say from that mountain and that's in Exodus chapter 20 and it's what we call or God calls the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, we're not going to go through all of them, but the first two really set the foundation for everything. Exodus 20. Those of you at home can say amen, that's okay. (laughs) And the Lord God spoke all these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Last week we looked at those first few words, I am the Lord. And we saw that the word Lord there is in all uppercase. Whenever the word Lord is in all uppercase in the Old Testament, it's referring to the Hebrew name Yahweh. And it was so sacred that they did not pronounce it. The word, the name Yahweh is the name that God gave, revealed to Moses when Moses came out of Egypt and God called him to go back and be the deliverer of her people. And Moses said, who am I to tell the elders that sent me? And God's answer was, you tell them that I am, that I am. What that name means is God is saying, the one who sent you, the one who is your Lord, is the, I'm self-existent. In other words, I owe my existence to nobody. Before anything existed, I was there. I am the prime mover. I am the beginning and I am the end. I owe nothing to anybody and everybody owes everything to me. I am the source of life. I am the source of everything. And I, everything, and, and therefore we looked at examples of people that wanted to argue with this God as if we had the same right to be on equal terms with him. And we watched Jonah, we saw uh, Job, and then we saw Paul deal with this issue to recognize and reverence who this God is that is our God. So today we're going to begin to look at the second part of what he says. I am the Lord, just two words, your God. Very powerful words. I am the Lord, your God. Whoops, I'm in the wrong notes. Excuse me. 
Technology is wonderful if, as long as you get the right page. All right, okay. Now, the word God here in Hebrew is different than the word Lord. A word God here is the Hebrew word Elohim, which means a generic God, God of any kind. Now, our God is a God, but it can refer to other gods. So we're going to talk today a little bit about what a God is, and then we're going to see that He is our God. It's the generic term for God. So what is a God? I looked up a definition, and, and the best one I found was, it's a superhuman being or spirit that's worshipped as having power over nature and over human fortunes, a deity. It's a superhuman being or spirit that's worshipped as having power over nature or human fortunes or, or well-being, a deity. Now the nation that they had come out of, Egypt, I looked this up, had over 2,000 gods that they worshipped. For every need they had in every situation, they chose a god. They looked at these gods for protection, and they looked at these gods for provision. So they had a god of, of fertility. They had a god of harvest. They had it to prosper. And they worshipped these gods in order to get a good harvest, in order to have children, in order to, what, for whatever, there was a god of health, there was a god of medicine, over 2,000. And this I pulled out of one of the websites. These gods all had names, individual personalities and characteristics. They wore different kinds of clothing. Now, they were not real, you know, but they made idols of them. Different, they held different objects as sacred, and they presided over their own domains of influence. In some cases, they were regions like Memphis, and there were other places that they would be ruling over. This is what the people worshipped. And they would, make, they would make images of them and worship them because if they pleased this God, then they believed this God would provide what they needed. These gods that they created reacted, and again, this is in their own mind, reacted in highly individualistic ways to human events. Each de deity had its own expertise, and they were often associated with different spheres of human life. Again, like food, uh, uh, prospering, uh, even specific areas of prospering. So if you were in business, there would be a god over your type of business. And so you would worship that kind of god, trusting, and, and, they, and they believed that these gods had relationships with each other. So the gods had children, so different gods were children of other gods. And they were creating this whole, and the Greeks did the same thing, they were creating this whole structure of superhuman beings that governed and affected they're part of their lives. But here's the key. They looked to them and trusted in them for what they needed, and as a result, they worshipped them. So gods can apply to that. So what the real God is saying is, I am to you what those gods were. The self-existent one that has no one that owes his existence to, I am your God. I am that God to you. And then he reminds them, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt and out of bondage. So, this is the culture that these people that have just come out of Egypt were, were, were raised in. Because they were there for over 400 years. That's, on biblical terms, about 10 generations. So by this time, all concept 
of the Jehovah, of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob had evaporated in most cases. They were not serving those gods. They didn't know about that God. The gods they knew about were the gods that their masters, that they physically served, lived, and they saw the evidence of this all around them. All right. Now, the term your, I am your God, your is a pronoun of possession. This is, this is, this is my sweater. This is my marble. All right? That means it belongs to me. I may share it with you, but when I share it with you, it's still mine. It's my Bible. Everybody in the office knows I have my pen. All right? It's a fountain pen that I just like to sign things with. So what God is saying is, I am the God and I belong to you. I am your God. So when we began to talk about this, we saw that God is establishing these quote-unquote rules, these commandments, as the basis, the foundation for a relationship that He wants to have with them. He's not a God that just sits in heaven with a long rod and hands out commandments and if you get out of line... Whack! I'm going to get you out. Some of you were raised in school where a nice lady with a funny outfit on might smack the back of your wrist, your hand, if you got out of line. That's not what God's like. God's not putting these out to say, if you cross this line, I'm going to get you, and if you don't, you'll be a good, good doobie and you can stay in class. No, God understands the basis of relationship that He wants to have with His people. And so God, at the very beginning, God is establishing for them, this is who I am, that I want you to have a relationship with me because I want to bless you, I want to protect you. I want to do for you the things those 2,000 gods that the Egyptians created could not do for you, but I can do these things for you, but I want you to know me, the one that's doing them for you. And that's what's behind these Ten Commandments. So it speaks of a special relationship that set Israel apart from every other people that the true and real God belonged to them and that they belong to Him. Now let's go to Exodus 23. And here's what I added today, because I saw this as I was going through this. Because God then goes on to say, if you will live in your part of this relationship, this is what I want to do for you. This is what I am able to do for you. We'll pick up in verse 20. There's many other things. And behold, I will send an angel before you to keep you in the way. Now that angel was the pillar of fire by day, and an angel just means messenger. It was the pillar of fire by day, and it was a, it was a cloud by day, and a pillar of fire at night that would lead them. Whenever the, the book of Numbers talks about that whenever the cloud moved, they moved. They had this whole community. Uh, and in the middle of the community was a tabernacle, which is, uh, uh, and, and Exodus goes on to tell them how to construct this. And it's where God would come down in the Holy of Holies on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the movie 20 or 30 years ago? The Ark, that's what it was about. God's presence that came down on Mount Sinai would come down in that room and only Moses and, and, the, and the high priest could go in there and the high priest could go in there one day a year on the Day of Atonement. 
And so God's presence was there. But what would happen is, when God wanted them to move, change locations, that cloud or that pillar, whether it was day or night, would lift up and it would begin to move. And what they would do is there was an entire fam- two, three families that were responsible for this tabernacle. And the moment the cloud started to move, they'd start packing this thing up. And they would get in march. And there was an order that God had them march in. And they would follow this cloud to where God would settle down. And when the cloud stopped or the pillar of fire stopped, they would set up camp around it again. So God was leading them through the wilderness by this angel, by this presence. So here we see one of the things that a God will do is give you direction, lead you. So God was saying to them, I will be the one that gives you direction. I will be the one that leads you. And all you need to do is keep your eyes on me. And we just finished a whole study last year where Jesus said what to his disciples? Follow me. So we'll talk about that at the end this morning. And bring you to the place that I have prepared. Verse 21. Beware of, um, beware of him, the angel, and, and obey his voice. Don't provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. In other words, there's a reverence for this God. If indeed you obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. Protection. An adversary to your adversaries. Protection. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Termites, I mean, the Jebusites. These were the people that were already occupying the land that God was giving them. And God is saying, I'm going to go in and I will move them out before you. Now, I don't think we're going to get into the section where God says, I'm going to move them out slowly so that, that, that the animals don't come in and destroy the land. Verse 30, 23. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the Amorites. I think I just read that, didn't I? Verse 24. You shall not bow to their gods, little g, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, for you will utterly overthrow them and completely break down their pillars. Verse 25. So you shall serve the Lord your God. In other words, this is how you will serve me. Who is this God that we serve? So you shall serve me by doing what I've said, by going to where I've told you to go, by, by, by doing my, following these commandments that I've given you. And, and what he said, he, you shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. God wants to be the one that takes sickness, not just heal us, take sickness away from the midst of us. Now, I'm not going to go off into this, but is it possible that so many of us have sickness in the midst of us is because we've not seen God in this light? God's been a resource that's out there, but we've not had this reverence for who He is and who He wants to be in our life. It was by not serving the other gods that God said that they would serve Him. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 7. Hope everybody's all right at home. Say amen so I can hear you. <laughs> I'll hear you by faith. Now, in Deuteronomy, we now move forward 
39 years basically. And the generation that would not go into, into the promised land has died off. And there's a young generation that's grown up in the wilderness and they're the ones that's now going, God's going to give them a chance to go in. And this is important because this generation did not grow up in the Egypt of idolatry with the 2,000 gods that they worshipped. They grew up in a system of worship that God had established. God had to get Egypt out. God got the, the people out of Egypt, but He had to get Egypt out of the people, is the old saying. And that's very true. And that's something we go through. God's brought us out of the world, but we're in the process of getting the world out of us. And that's the process of renewing our, renewing our minds. So, so here, as, as there are, this second generation is in the same place that the first generation was, but 39 years later, God is preparing them to go in also. So Deuteronomy is basically, the word basically means a recounting of the law. Moses is going back over to remind them of their history, where they've come from, and what God has done for them in the past, and the things God has said to them. So this is, God is basically, so this is 39 years later to the next generation. We'll pick up in verse 12. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which He swore to your fathers. We just read the covenant and mercy that He swore to your fathers. And He will love you and bless you and multiply you. So He's going to prosper them. He's going to increase them. He will bless you the fruit of your womb and the fruit, that's your children, and the fruit of your land and your grain, that's your business, and your new wine, we won't get into that, and your oil, and the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flock, in the land which He swore to your fathers to give you. He will bless you above all the peoples, and there shall be not one male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Verse 15, And the Lord will take away from you all, 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 the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases which you've known, but He'll lay those on those who hate you. We're not going to go there this morning. So let's go back to Exodus 20. God is promising to be their God in the affairs of their life, in the important affairs of their life. God is promising to provide for them. God is promising, and God, God did that. I mean, for those 40 years, they're in a wilderness, a wilderness. Now, we get concerned, well, what are they going to do if they shut down the grocery stores? What are they going to do? They had no grocery stores. They had no Walmart. They had nowhere to go. And this God, who was their God, provided for them when they were in a wilderness. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. And God brought food down from heaven every day because God was training them. Deuteronomy 8 says, God was training them so that they would understand that man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's sustained. He's fed. 
He's prospered. He's protected from sickness and disease. He is protected and provided for by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It has proceeded from the mouth of God, but it's got to get into our heart and proceed out of our mouth in order for it to be effective. Psalm 91 works, but it's got to get in your heart and then come out of your mouth. It's come out of God's mouth. But we live by too many other things than the, but the Word of God. We live by our own resources. We live by CNN. We live by uh, some home remedy. We live by doctors. And praise God for the doctors. But God's saying, I'll remove it from your midst. Psalm 91 says, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand your right hand. It may not work for anybody else, but it will not come near me. That's what God has said. And man is to live not just by natural resources, but by every word that proceeds from... So it's proceeded from God's mouth. What's proceeding from yours? What's proceeding from yours? Say, so, well, that's just old-fashioned stuff, old, old Testament stuff. Now, watch what Jesus, words to Jesus... Read the Gospels and look at what Jesus said. He said, I only say what I hear my Father said. Jesus didn't fly off the handle and express what everybody else was saying. Jesus only spoke what His Father said. Jesus didn't just live by bread alone. In fact, He used that verse when Satan was tempting Him after fasting for 40 days. He used that verse, Satan was tempting Him in His hunger to turn those stones into bread. And Jesus said, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I say it again. I've never said this before. It's already proceeded from God's mouth. But it's got to get in your heart and then proceed out of your mouth. The devil knows what God said. He doesn't know that you know what God said until he hears you say what God said. But it's got to get in your heart. You can't say it out of your mind. It's got to come out of your, out of your heart flow the issues of life, the forces of life. Well, let's take a look at what they did. We saw what God promised. Exodus 20, we're going to go on now. You shall have no other God, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. That actually means no other gods in place of me. It's not like you can have a bunch of idols as long as you put God first. You shall have no other gods in place of me. And this is, we'll talk about where we are with that. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of that which is in heaven or that which is on the earth beneath or that which is under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, and, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." We shall stop there because the rest of these proceed out of here. You shall have no other gods in place of me. You shall not make for yourself some image that you bow down to. Now, we would never do that. But let's look at what Israel did, and then we may look at how we respond to this. So having seen that, um, oh, I, I want to, verse, did I skip something here? Uh, 
Oh, yeah, verse 5 again. Go back there. You shall not bow to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, there it is again, your God, am a jealous God. See, we kind of think of jealousy as a sin. Well, I shouldn't be jealous of anybody. No, that's covet. Covet is when I want something that I'm not entitled to that you have. Jealous means there's something that's mine somebody else is getting in the way of or taking away from me. So if you were to make a play for my wife, I would get jealous because she's my wife. She doesn't belong to you. Understand that? She belongs to me and in the right sense. I mean, I don't possess her, but she's my wife. She's not your wife. All right? So jealousy, if someone asks for my wife, because I'm, she's my wife, I'm entitled to be the exclusive husband and have an exclusive relationship of a husband to her. Nobody else is. So jealousy, in this sense, comes out of a caring and it comes out of a relationship that's, that's, that's an a, a ownership, not in the sense of control. And so what God's saying is the reason you can have no other gods is I'm jealous. You belong to me. I love you. And I want to be first in your heart. James 4 talks about this also. That the Spirit of God is jealous over you. That means He cares for you. That means you matter to Him. That what your affections go to and who your affections go to matter to Him because He wants to be first. That's the first above all commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. And then love one another. So God's saying this not because He has a big stick and wants to beat us. He wants, to, he wants you to Himself because He wants to bless you, take care of you. He wants to be the one that you know is taking care of you, providing for you. Then you won't possibly be able to fear. What does it matter? One of the ministries that I follow, he had a grandson that was born uh, 20 minutes with no oxygen. 10 minutes in the womb and 10 minutes out. And this church came together and they began to stand on God's Word. And after, tw- after 20 minutes, this little baby came alive. And then the doctor said, yeah, maybe alive, but he'll never walk, never talk, he'd be brain damaged. And all the physical evidence said the same thing. But they, would, they took God's Word and they stood on God's Word. And they stood on God's words for 19 days. And every day, those situations, every word they spoke over that baby, they began to confess. Because images will come to you, just they're coming to you now. I was half awake this morning and thoughts began to bombard my mind and it didn't take long for me picturing myself on a respirator. Because the thoughts were, you know, you're in your 70s, you're in that high risk group. Oh, and you know what? You've been tired lately. And all these thoughts began to break down my resistance in my mind and and it didn't take long. I wonder what a respirator feels like. It says, wait a minute! See, this is where our minds will go if we don't take control over them. That's Satan trying to get in my heart and so fear pictures into my heart. So they would have to battle that when they're looking at evidence that looks just the opposite. And his son would go in there and, and, and all, these, all these indicators are that, that doc, the, doctors, the doctors did their best. They were using their wisdom to tell them what the facts were. But the truth is above the facts. And, and they would speak to this little baby and, 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 the, and the, the readings would turn around. And in 19 days, they took that baby out of that hospital perfectly normal. And it's been a year and a half later and that child is perfectly normal. And I heard this pastor say, you know, when you've looked death in the face and you've defeated it with the Word of God, nothing can scare you. We need to have that kind of bulldog 
faith, but it's not going to come by listening to what the world's telling us. I'm not saying be ignorant, but I'm saying don't dwell, don't meditate, because when you listen to it over, you're meditating on, oh, then we share it with one another. We get on social media, and we now we start speaking it out, and now we've agreed with it. Now we've agreed with it. So let's see what they did. Let's go to, um, uh, in fact, we won't go there, but in Deuteronomy 4, God said to, uh, to Moses, I, 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 when I came down on the mountain, I couldn't come down on my real form because you would have made an image out of it. So I had to come down in a form you could not make an image out of because you would have made an image out of it and worked the... You know why? Because we're so carnal and sense-minded. We have to have something we can see in order to worship it. And if we don't have it, we'll make it. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So let's go to Exodus 32. Now, we're now years, a little few years after, or maybe not, that's no, not a few years, a few months after what we just read, God speaking to them. Exodus 32. In fact, it's not long after. And God has called Moses back home from the mountain. So their pastor's on the mountain talking to God. That's the picture we would use today. It was here this morning. There we go. And we'll, we'll start here in verse 1. It had to be on the next page, didn't it? So M- Moses is on the mountain. He's been up there for 40 days. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, let us make gods that shall go before us for, uh, for as for this, this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Now stop there a second. Think of what they're saying. Think of what their minds have processed. They believe Moses brought them out. Now Moses was the representative of God that God used to bring them out, but Moses didn't part the Red Sea. Moses didn't bring the locusts. Moses didn't do all those things. God did it through Moses. Don't ever forget, I'm just as human as you are. We had a meeting with the, the, the Wednesday night group that I lead in his steps, and some of the dear people that are fairly new here said, you know, oh, pastor, you just, we'd just love to hear you talk, and, and let, my wife doesn't love to hear me talk all the time, because <laughs> I'm real, I'm a human being. I said, no, you understand this. God has given me a gift to break things down and explain them. And God uses that gift to make himself more real to you. What gives life and gets you excited is that through me you can see something about God. But God's the one that's doing that in you. I'm just a conduit through which God's able to do that. They didn't understand that. So because they were so carnal in their mind, that just means fleshly. They had to worship something they could see and Moses was out of sight. So they had to make something else for themselves that they could worship and they could put their trust in. Now, the real fault here is with Moses' brother Aaron, who he left in charge. And Aaron said to them, verse 2, Break off the gold earrings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. I guess their sons had gold earrings back then. And bring them to me. Now some of this gold was thrown at them, literally, by the Egyptian women when they left Egypt. They wanted the, the Israelites to go so badly. They took their gold and their silver and they threw it at them. In fact, one translation says, Israel plundered Egypt. 
God gave that gold to them so that they could use that gold to build the Ark of the Covenant and the instruments by which God would come down and they could worship a holy God. Now they're going to take this resource God has given them and they're going to make this into a physical God that they're going to worship. Verse 4, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. What is the first commandment? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they're not making an image of Baal. They're not making an image of Satan to be Satan worshipers. They're making an image... By the way, there, were, there was, a, there was a, um, a god in Egypt with the name Apis. Apis. They're not sure which, what, what god they were thinking of, but most likely it was, it was, a, it was a divine god, godly bull. And so they're making of some image that they've seen in Egypt, they're making this golden calf that they're now going to call the god who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It's, it's, it's not long since God appeared on the mountain and told them this. But remember what they said. Oh, we don't need to hear this from God. Moses, you tell us what God said. And by our own self-determination, by our own, by our own purpose, we'll do what God said. They didn't last weeks. And they're making themselves for themselves a golden calf. So, they went, when, so that when Aaron saw it, he built an altar. See, Aaron's at fault here. Built an, built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Look at the Lord. It's, it's the capital letters. That's Yahweh. Tomorrow is a feast to the self-existent one. The one who is the foundation of all of our existence. We're going to declare a feast to worship Him through this calf we've made. Now what's the issue with man making an, an idol? What, what's the issue with that? I mean, wouldn't that help us to worship God? No, here's the issue. And we don't have time. We'll see it a little later on as we study more of who God is and His characteristics. There's a, there's a place where God told Moses, it was right after the Ten Commandments. He said, here's the law of the altar. You can make a sacrifice to me, which is a worship, on the dirt. Or you can make an altar of stone and do your sacrifices on that. But the moment you cut or fashion that stone in any way, you have profaned it. Profaned means you've perverted it. Why? Because who made the stone? The self-existent one made the stone. Who made the dirt? The self-existent one made the dirt. But when we take the stone and we begin to add our with our tools and our thoughts and our designs to what God has created, then we profane what is no longer just God. We've added to it. And that's the sin of the garden. And that's still the sin of today. A little sidetrack here. There are many of you God has put a special gift in that He wants to use to worship Him whether it's a gift to teach, to sing, or maybe just creative, whatever it is. God's put something in all of us. But that gift came from God. He's the creator of that gift. 
And the battle is always to make sure I don't somehow put my hand in the process of forming that gift to use for God with the best of intentions. I don't have time to go through the story. I've shared it sometimes before. But I knew from early on God had given me a gift to teach and break things down and explain them, even when I was a lawyer. But God had to take me through a 10-year process to get the me out of that gift before He could release me to do what I'm doing today. Because anytime we add anything of ourselves, even with the best of intentions, we profane it because part of it now, goes, the glory goes to us, not all of it going to God. All right, where was I before I interrupted myself? Okay, verse 6. So they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Those were the kind of worship they did. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That may not mean much to you, but that's a Hebrew idiom for sexual immorality. That's a Hebrew idiom for all kinds of wild partying. So this was not just your jump in the aisles, run and dance before the Lord. This was promiscuous. This, was, this is why in, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses this as an example of what could happen when we get our eyes off of God and off of serving Him, and what has happened in many cases. All right. Um, okay, verse 7. Now, this is a very significant. Moses is, Moses is not in the camp checking out what's going on. Moses is in God's presence. And look what happens. And the Lord said to Moses, Get down, go down the mountain. For your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God has a sense of humor. I'm glad He does. Because as as you read through the story, it's almost like a husband and wife having this discussion. God says, it's your people that you let out that are doing idolatry. And Moses says, how come you let your people out? These are your people. Neither neither of them takes responsibility for them. And I want you to see something. God is furious. Those verses I referred to in Hebrews about time when things can be shaken, they'll be shaken. It ends by saying God is a consuming fire. Not because he's, he's holy. We'll talk about that down the road. He said, Lord said to Moses, Go down for the, your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made for themselves a molded calf and they've worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and indeed they're a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, and my wrath will burn hot against them, that I may consume them and make of you a great nation. Now, just, I don't want to take too much time. Just get the scene. Got Moses in this holy presence of God. And God says, you need to get down the mountain because this is what they're doing now. And I want you, Moses, just step aside because I am furious with them. I just told them not to do this. And they're they're calling that calf me. And he says, you step aside. I'm going to fry them. I'm going to turn those two million people into a puddle of grease. You step aside. I don't want to hurt you. I'm going to fry them on the spot and start over with just you. Now, if Moses hadn't gotten all of him out of this, if Moses weren't humble 
In fact, the Bible says he's the most humble man that lived. And you know who wrote that? Moses. Because it's in the Pentateuch, and Moses wrote, you've got to be pretty humble before God to say, I'm the humblest man that lived. He had to be humble because God's saying, look, there are a bunch of turkeys. These are the people that were driving Moses crazy. They were bothering him. They were keeping him up at night. He was frustrated with them. They were always blaming him for what God did to them or did, they thought God didn't do to them. He was a pastor. And so God, God says to him, all right, the people, that have, the people that have been driving you crazy, the people have been so rebellious, I'm going to take care of it now. You step aside. I'm going to get back at them for everything you've done. And you can just imagine Moses sitting up there, yeah, yeah, go get them, and start with this one over here. Yeah, no, but that's not what Moses does. I mean, that's pretty heady stuff. God's saying, look, I'm going to start over, just you and me. But Moses, we don't have time to go through the scripture. Moses stepped in between. And Moses argued his, the case for those rebellious, stiff-necked people that God was angry. He stood up to the angry God and told God he couldn't do it. Some translations said he told God to repent. You've got to know you're right before you tell God not to repent when he's angry. Now understand, God gets angry, but he doesn't lose his temper. Anger, when you lose your temper, means you're out of control and it's always self-based. But there's a righteous, holy anger for what's right and what's true and what's just. And God has had it. But Moses steps in between. We're time to read through the whole story. And Moses basically says, you can't do that. (laughs) He says, what are the Egyptians going to think? You went through all of that stuff to get them out, to show your great power over Pharaoh. You got them out, and now you can't even get them a few weeks down the road? He's arguing a case with God. He said God repented. He changed his mind. See, we can affect God. God does. In fact, God needs us. That's what intercession is. We need to argue people's cases. We need to argue before God for other people and stand in the gap so God does not do what is righteous judgment. He doesn't want to, but needs somebody to stand up for them and tell Him, please don't do this. Well, Moses comes down. So now Moses executes judgment. And I'm going to have time to go through the whole story. He took the calf, they ground it up, and he made them drink it. Put it in the water and he made them drink. Drink what they did. And then he destroys the ones that were responsible for that, except for Aaron. So how does this... Let's bring this to a close. How does this apply to us? Well, we'd never make a golden calf. At least I hope you wouldn't. And maybe you, for years, had a symbol or something on your dashboard or around your neck or something and jewelry's fine dashboard things are fine what's your trust in? what are you worshipping? I mean there was a craze in the 80's I think it was if you had frogs images of frogs in your house they were demonic that's stupid alright what are you worshipping? what are you trusting? many of the people that got rid of the frogs and all the little idols but they're worshipping with their heart something other than Yahweh the self-existent one But here's the point. When they made this calf 
Again, as I said a few minutes ago, they didn't call it Baal. They didn't call it Satan. They didn't say, we're going to worship Satan. They made for themselves an image of what they wanted God to be for them. And this is the idolatry which we can fall into. Where, and I hear it all the time, well, God wouldn't do that. How do you know God wouldn't do that? Well, I just don't think God... Well, there are people, there's, there's major churches out there that are teaching that there's no hell. There can't be a hell because how could a loving God create a place and send people to it? That's creating your own image of what God's like by your own reasoning, taking one of His qualities and extrapolating from that the rest of what you want Him to be like. This is why I started by saying, God has given us His blueprint to an understanding of what He's like. And He's put His Spirit in us to take this Word and to reveal it to us. All of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is about this issue. It talks about the wisdom of the world. It's trying to understand God and worshiping God. It says the Greeks relied on wisdom and the Jews relied on power. It says, but, but it's, it's God chose the foolish things of the world. That's us. God chose things that the world thinks are foolish to confound the wise. But there is a, there is a mystery that God reveals to us by His Spirit. So as we go forward in this study, we're going forward with the idea of looking at ourselves. Is there some way in which I am creating God, the God into what I want Him to be, Instead, because if I do that, then wherever I do that, I'm not open for Him to show me what He's like. Now we know some basic things about Him. He loves you. Romans 5 tells you He demonstrated His love for you in while we were His enemies, He gave His Son's life in our place. So we know that whatever God is like, the foundation for it is love. But then we start interpreting what we think love would do instead of finding out from God what He says to us. So we start molding God into what we're comfortable with. So, so large parts of the church are now molding God that God would never judge. God would never be angry. And yet the Word says He's a consuming fire. So God would never do... So how do we bring these things together? We've got to do it through the Word. We can't do it. That's all I'm saying this morning. We can't let our mind form its own conclusions about what I want God to be or what you think God is like or I think God is like. This is where I do every Sunday with fear and trembling to make sure that I'm not projecting something to you of what I want Him to be like, but I need to project to Him to you what I believe God's saying that He is like. I want to close with this. This is what God, one of the things God says about Himself. King David wrote most of the Psalms. David, before he was a king, was a shepherd boy. And out of his, his service of his father as a shepherd, he learned all kinds of things about God being out in the wilderness with His Father's sheep facing the threats, the needs that were out there. Out in the wilderness, David was alone against lions and bears and animals that came, predators that came to destroy the sheep. He was alone in dealing with that. He didn't have a large army he could call upon. He didn't have a government he could call upon. It was just he and the God that he was getting to know. Out in that fields, you know, he didn't have, he couldn't go buy bales of hay or whatever sheep eat and, and feed it to the sheep. He had to trust, he had to find some way to lead them where they needed. 
And in the, I never taught this before. In the process of doing that for these sheep, God was teaching David, who would later be the king of Israel, how God would be, wanted to be a God to his people Israel, and through David, he would lead them. And so we're going to close. We're going to close with a psalm that you all know well, and I could recite it, but I want to, I want to read it to you. The 23rd Psalm. Well, they're going to put it up there, right? Just think about this. The Lord, notice what it is. The Lord, the self-existent one, Yahweh, is my shepherd. We talked about He is my God. He is our God. So the Lord, who is the self-existent one, is my shepherd. And everything we're going to read now is what a shepherd does for his sheep. The shepherd is a God in this sense to his sheep. I shall not want. So whatever we're facing right now, we know that because Jehovah, Yahweh, is our God, our shepherd, we know that whatever faces us, we shall not want. That's a good word to put in your heart. That's a good word. This is just the music team getting ready to to take their place. They shall not want. Next verse. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Sheep have nowhere to know what's safe to eat. He leads me beside still water. See, He's providing their needs. A shepherd leads them where they need to go to get what they need. He cares about us. God's not going to abandon you. God's not going to abandon us as long as we are in a position to hear what He has to say and to do what He has to say. And if we panic, if we're afraid, if we speak fear, we won't hear what He does. We won't be open to receive His ways of meeting our needs. He restores my soul. So whatever your soul may go through, He restores my soul. He leads me into paths of righteousness for His namesake. Though I walk, this is protection now, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Think about that a second. That's scary. The valley of the shadow of death. Well, let's think about that a second. I heard the expression, many of you have heard it, The shadow of a dog never bit anybody. A shadow has no substance. But it's a reflection of the light against something that does have substance. So death used to have a substance to us as Christians. But because we're in Christ, we've already died. That's why Paul says, Death, where is your sting? Though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your God, your Jehovah, your God is with you wherever you go. Whether you feel Him or you don't feel Him, His promise to you is to be with you. And when we're afraid and we panic, we're not recognizing that He's with us. We're facing these situations alone, and alone they can be scary. But in God, and with what God can do, we're never alone, and nothing's scary to us when we're in God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I love this one. This is a picture of a... You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I get this image... Of, a, of, a, of, a, of an army sitting there ready to destroy him 
And God says, here's what we're going to do. Let's have lunch. So he puts a table out, and he puts all kinds of food out. You know, you've got to be pretty much at rest to be able to sit there and enjoy your lunch, and your enemies looking at you, threatening to destroy you. That's the peace that he wants to give us as our shepherd. So in this case, we've got Satan threatening us through viruses and all these threats, and God's saying, just, I'll prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Enjoy it. Notice that you anoint my head with oil. My cup has enough so that I'll have a little bit. No, my cup runs over. Abundance so that there's more pouring out of you to others. Surely, surely. Now when God says surely, it double emphasizes it. Certainly, absolutely, definitely. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can come on in. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we've been able to come together today. I thank you for everyone that's been able to tune in online or however they've been able to watch this, this service. We trust, Father, that the words we've heard are now sown into our hearts. That the Spirit of the living God who lives in us will take these words and begin to birth them into our hearts and strengthen them as we go forth into the rest of this day and the week that lies before us. Only you know what this week has to tell. But we know the one who knows. And we thank you this morning for your assurance today. We thank you for your confidence that you put in us today. Now help us today, Father, to continue to encourage one another, to use the media that we have and the resources we have to strengthen and encourage one another. We thank you, Father, for all the things that we prayed for today. 